0: Let's go to Esther chapter 9. I plan to conclude our series through this book tonight. I'm not sure where we're going next. Last time we saw the day of wicked Haman's genocidal decree come to pass against the Jews. But thanks to Mordecai's decree, the Jews were able to defend themselves against their enemies. Both decrees were legal. Because in Persia, if you issued a decree, it's got to come to pass. And we saw how God protected the house of Judah. It wasn't because the Jews deserved it, but it was because God still had to fulfill his word that the Messiah would arrive through Judah and, more specifically, the house of David. And on that day, 75,000 were killed who came against the Jews. In the palace city of Shushan, 500 were killed the first day. But you may recall, Esther requested another day to defend themselves, which came in handy because another 300 were killed. That still came against them the next day. Among those killed in Shushan were the ten sons of Haman. Esther had their dead bodies put on the gallows. (laughs) And I'm sure that was a deterrent. Haman the Agagite, the Jew's enemy, and his seed had been wiped out. And some see that as God fulfilling His promise in Exodus 17, 14, that He would utterly destroy Amalek from under heaven. King Saul, remember, was charged to destroy them, and he failed to fully obey. And the Jews in the book of Esther are fighting an enemy that should have been destroyed long ago. There were several thoughts we covered, and if you missed it, I'd ask you to go back and listen, but we closed with the understanding that there's no hope for the enemies of God, and they will never prevail, and praise God, we're on the winning side, and it's all because of who He is. We'll begin tonight in chapter 9. Let's read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. On the thirteenth day of the month Adar, on the fourteenth day of the same rested they and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof, and on the fourteenth day thereof, and on the fifteenth day of the same they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another." And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them, because Haman the son of of the Akagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and cast purr, that is, the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore, they call these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter, and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained, and took upon them, and upon their seed, and upon all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing, and according to their appointed time every year. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of, of Ahel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews to the and twenty and seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed, according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Amen. So what do you do when you're on the winning side? You celebrate. Oh, amen. (laughs) Well, that went over well. Uh, The Jews certainly had cause for celebration. And of course, when there's a celebration, there's food involved. Amen. Especially we Baptists. When Haman's decree was first issued, there was sorrow and fasting. But now that their enemies had been defeated, there's gladness and feasting. Throughout the empire, the Jews fought on the 13th day of the month Adar, and they experienced rest on the 14th day, so they were celebrating on the 14th day, but because in Shushan they needed another day, they celebrated the 15th day uh, as, uh, of the month of Adar uh, for their celebration of victory. So on these days of celebration, they would send food to each other. I like that. Amen. We might move again just to keep getting meals. What a blessing. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and they would also send money to the poor so that they could participate as well. And those who have experienced mercy should themselves extend mercy. And that's what was taking place. In Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus said uh, through a parable When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Good words. (laughs) These days of celebration were called Purim, named after Pur as we read, which means a lot, as in casting a lot, which Haman, he had the Pur cast in order to discern What would be the best day to issue his decree against the Jews and have them destroyed? So it kind of seems to me that the name of this celebration Purim is kind of like a perpetual smack talk on what was supposed to be bad for them turned out to be good. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And that's what took place. The Lord took the counsel given to Haman through the purr and turned the lot against him. Isaiah forty four twenty five says of God that He frustrateth the tokens of the liars and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish. And that's what happened in this account. What was supposed to be a day of great victory for the enemies of the Jews became a day of their defeat. And the whole point of the days of Purim was to celebrate how the tables had been turned against the enemies of the Jews. And, of course, that's highlighted here in this chapter. If you'll notice in verse 22, it says, The month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day. In verse 25, it says, Haman's wicked device which he devised against the Jews should return upon his own head. And so we see that these days of Purim became an annual celebration amongst the Jews. It was issued by Mordecai. It was confirmed uh, by Esther throughout the entire Persian Empire. It was ordained that these days of Purim should never fail from among the seed of the Jews. It was to be a continual memorial among them. God had provided them a great victory. Why not celebrate? Amen. Strangely enough, though, God still is never mentioned. I don't know if we're to assume that He's there in their thoughts. I I don't know. I don't know if they acknowledged God or not. It never says in this book that they did. But to this day, the Jews celebrate these uh, Feast of Purim every year, or the celebration of Purim every year. In addition to giving food and money to the poor, they read the book of Esther. And when the name of Haman is red, they boo, make a lot of noise. And yeah, they do a lot of other stuff too. You'd have to research it. They eat these things called Haman's ears. Yeah, it's a cookie. Don't worry. Um, they do all kinds of stuff. Um, but sadly, they don't fully understand why they celebrate it. 2 Corinthians 3 verses 14 through 16, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, uh, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So they don't fully understand God's reasons for delivering them because they have rejected the Messiah. They don't see it as God preserving Judah in order that God would keep His Word to bring Christ into the world, their deliverer. And like a lot of holidays, Purim has been corrupted. Purim is also called the upside-down holiday because of how the events unfold in Esther. Everything is turned, as I just pointed out. And a matter of fact, in their Talmud, which is their source of religious law and theology, it's essentially the oral traditions that Jesus railed against in His day, they're actually told to get drunk when they celebrate the day of Purim. The Talmud instructs people to drink on Purim until he cannot distinguish between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordecai. So what started out with good intentions has been corrupted by the sin nature of man. But they're not alone. Right? I know people get drunk on Christmas. Uh, Many holidays and celebrations that were intended, started with good intentions, have since been corrupted. And now it's just an excuse to party. Matthew Henry noted this, Nothing more purifies the heart and adorns religion than holy joy. Nothing more pollutes the heart and reproaches religion than carnal mirth, which is joy, and sensual pleasure. Now let's take note of verse 28 again. Uh, And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. And I want you to pick up on that word memorial tonight. This was a memorial unto them of how God had miraculously delivered them. And every child of God, should have some memorials. Every child of God. And, and every child of God has memorials, whether they realize it or not. I hope to bring some of that out. I don't mean that they have to be physical items, though that can be true. But I'm talking about those times when God has wrought a great victory in your life. Memorials that you can see where God delivered you. Amen? Amen. In Exodus 12, God instructed the children of Israel to keep the Passover as a memorial throughout their generations. The reason was so that they would remember what God did for them the night that the death angel passed through the land, and those who had the blood on the door and the doorpost were spared, and those who didn't, the firstborn, uh, were killed. And tied with that was the seven days of unleavened bread, and that was to be a memorial that the Lord's law was to be in their mouth, and a remembrance of how the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Deliverance. And when God wrought a great victory for the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt and they fought against Amalek, God told Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. When God held back the Jordan River so that they could cross into the promised land, God told Joshua, take one man from each of the twelve tribes, And they were to take a stone from where the priest's feet stood firm, and they were to take of those 12 stones, and they were to set up a memorial on the west side of Jordan, a memorial that God had cut off the waters for them to pass. When the woman broke her alabaster box of very precious ointment and she anointed Jesus, Jesus said, "'Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done,' shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. So do you have any memorials? Do you have things you can praise God for? Do you have moments when God showed Himself strong on your behalf? Do you have victories where you know God fought for you? I have some things that I consider memorials. They don't mean a whole lot to you, but they mean a lot to me. I'll mention one just to give you an idea so you can understand that they don't have to be something elaborate. But for example, I have one of the Bibles my dad used to preach from, and that's a memorial for me. doesn't mean anything to you, but it reminds me of how blessed I am to come from a godly heritage. It reminds me of how God has orchestrated my life. And on that note, I'm also blessed to have one of Pastor William's old Bibles. It's a memorial of how God established this church. Amen. It's a reminder of how he was used by God to build in my life the, upon the foundation that my parents had laid. And, and there's plenty of other things I could cite, but do you have memorials? If you're in Christ, you you have a memorial. Amen. You have the greatest memorial of all. You've been saved. And your testimony is your memorial of God's grace upon your life. And it's a memorial of how God was long-suffering in bringing you to Himself. In the book of Hosea, we read about how Jacob wrestled with God. and We read in Hosea 12.5, Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord is His memorial. If you're in, if you're in the Lord, you have a memorial. Uh, you may not have seen it that way, but if you're saved, the Lord Himself is a memorial. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius had a vision of an angel of God coming to Him and saying, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. How about that? If you pray to God, those are memorials. If you give to God, your giving is a memorial before God. The church has been given the memorial of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Amen. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Memorial Supper. And it's the memorial of Christ's sacrificial death that we observe The day of your baptism could be considered a memorial in that it was the day that you publicly identified with Christ, signifying that you believed in His death, burial, and resurrection publicly. So are you with me with what I'm talking about with memorials here? They can be any number of things. Memorials are anything that causes you to rejoice in God. They might be physical things. They might not. But I believe every child of God should have memorials especially as they walk with God, you'll gain memorials in your life. Maybe it's a photograph. Amen? I know we were taking pictures back when I was preaching out a lot. We take a picture everywhere that we went of that church where we preached. Those are memorials. Amen? Um, anyway, it, it may be a, moment, uh, a memento. It, it may be a memory. And, and I would encourage you to capture that as God said to Joshua or to Moses, write it in a book. Write those things down as a memorial that the next generation can learn. Listen, memorials are important enough that God set it up. God said do this. God said you ought to have these memorials. Take these 12 stones. Keep the Passover. Keep the Days of Unleavened Bread. These are memorials. God wanted Israel to have memorials so they could have teaching opportunities. And they're meant to provoke thought in our children. Concerning the Passover and unleavened bread, God said in Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27, "...and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses." And then in Exodus 13, 8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. You see how personal it is. This is what the Lord did for me when I was delivered. Dad, why do we keep this? Because God delivered me. God instructed Israel when they came into the land, they were to set apart the firstborn males of man and beast as the Lord's. Exodus 13, verses 14 and 15. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of, out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix between being males But all the firstborn of My children I redeem. And God said, you you keep these things. Do this because it's going to make them ask. And then in the the twelve stones out of Jordan, we read this in Joshua 4, 6 and 7, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever." Same chapter, verses 22 through 24. Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that ye might fear the Lord your God forever." So listen, we we have a responsibility to teach our children the ways of God. One of the things that can provoke thought are these memorials. And hopefully our children will see what we're doing. It'll cause them to ask, why? What is that? Why do you have that? Why do we do this? And we can tell them how God worked on our behalf. Psalm 145, verses 4 and 5, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7, We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That's why we're teaching our children. That's why we should have some memorials, so that when they ask, we tell them of God's deliverance and we teach them to keep those commandments if they want the same deliverance. Amen. So are you teaching the next generation? Do you have some memorials you can point to? Do you explain why you faithfully gather together as a church body? Are you explaining that? Or for your children, is it just going to be, well, that's what we did growing up. I don't really know why we did it. That's just what we did. Do you teach them why you seek to keep His Word? Deuteronomy 6, 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. There's never a moment that we're not to be teaching our children. Amen. If you're concerned about not having any memorials, perhaps, I'll promise you, if you'll walk with God long enough, you'll get some memorials. Because God will deliver you. You will have your own accounts. You will have your things to tell and you'll have memorials you can share with your children, God will see to it that you have some memorials. And sometimes we just need to change our perspective to understand maybe we have quite a bit of memorials, we just don't share them in that light, but we ought to. We ought to explain that it was God's good hand upon us, amen? And, and listen, because God blesses you, your children have a roof over their head. Whoop food in their belly and clothes on their back. They need to know those things. It's not because you're this great worker. It's because God is good to you. Now you ought to work. Amen. (laughs) Well, praise the Lord. Let's try to close out this book, shall we? Look at chapter 10. It's only three verses. Don't worry. And the king Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all the acts of his power and of his might and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai... Whereunto the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of, the, of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. In verse 1, we're not told the occasion why Ahasuerus laid a tribute upon the land and the isles of the sea. And it would only be speculation to try to arrive at a conclusion. Verses 2 and 3, we see how Mordecai was great in the eyes of the king and in the eyes of the people. He was advanced to a position second only to the king. We've already seen his advancement, but it's been secured. Mordecai sought the wealth and peace of his people. And I was reminded of Proverbs 29.2, which says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. And that kind of summarizes the last part of Esther. And we should pray for leaders like that in our country. Leaders that would seek to bless God's people. Would understand that there's blessing in doing so. I think it'd be great to have some leaders once again who understood that. Instead, we're now just, stay in your building and we're okay. Well, that's not how it should be. We just gather here, amen? We're still a church when we leave here. I don't want to get down that road. Nor do I want to get on politics, so I'll stop there. I want us to take note here of the type of Christ we see in chapter 10. And I would encourage you to ponder this further. I don't have time to really expound it. And I hate ending a series. This is why this is so choppy. I I never can end them right because I know I don't have next week. And I'm used to having next week, which is why we normally cover like two verses. King Ahasuerus was a wicked man. Um, He laid tribute upon the land, the isles, of the sea. But I want to use that as a picture of of God. And and God has laid a tribute upon this earth. 1 Chronicles 16.29 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due to His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You know, God is due glory. It's owed to Him. He is to be worshipped in the beauty of holiness. He deserves our life. He is owed the reward of His suffering. In Mordecai, we see Christ. He was elevated to the position right next to the king. And Christ has been exalted at God's right hand forevermore. God has given Jesus a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And though Mordecai was accepted by his brethren and Christ was rejected by his brethren, we understand that those who have been accepted... Uh, or those who have accepted Christ have been accepted by Christ. Amen. And now Christ seeks the wealth and the peace of His people as Mordecai did His. Charles Spurgeon wrote this um, about, well, first he wrote about Mordecai being a type of Christ, but then he related Mordecai as an example for all of us to emulate as believers. And he wrote this, it is at once the most Christ-like and the most happy course for a believer to cease from living to himself. He who blesses others cannot fail to be blessed himself. Here is the place to ask thee, my friend, whether thou art, the best of, whether thou art to the best of thy power seeking the wealth of the church in thy neighborhood. I trust thou art not doing it mischief by bitterness and scandal, nor weakening it by thy neglect. Friend, unite with the Lord's poor. Bear their cross. Do them all the good thou canst, and thou shalt not miss thy reward." We have a responsibility, amen? We ought to be seeking the welfare of others. We ought to be out there telling them about Christ. And as I, I close this series, I want to remind you why I was led to do this in the first place, and that is because this book teaches us of God's providence it is a it is a book where god is never mentioned spiritual things are are really never clearly mentioned and yet god's unseen hand is at work we, you can't miss it as a believer seeing god at work there's so much uncertainty in our world today would you agree with that it and it's like we're in this yo-yo now in our country and and there's so much uncertainty but I want you to be cons- uh, assured as we've gone through this study that the Lord is in complete control. He, he, he's not surprised. He, he's on the throne and He's ahead of the enemy always. And nothing will ever surprise our God. And, and this is true in all the areas of our life, it is true for us as a people nationally. God's at work, it, it's true in our church. There's things that don't always make sense, but God's at work. It's true in our homes. There's things that we don't like that we go through. They don't make sense, but we know God's at work. And it's true in our own individual lives. God's at work. He's always working to bring us to himself. Even as they were out of the will of God, God is still at work. Now, that's not an excuse to live your life any old way you want. Amen. But God will be at work to bring you back. You just may not like how He does it. Amen. So as we approach the end of days, the Bible teaches it's going to wax worse. Now, I'm not losing hope. God can still send revival. Amen. Amen. He's doing great things here. And, and we'll need to have faith in God that He's orchestrating all the pieces on the world stage as He sees fit to bring about His purposes. It won't always be comfortable but we can always be comforted. Yes. Just remember this, this world is not our home. <laughs> we, have, we have no continuing city here, but we seek a heavenly city. Amen. We're strangers and pilgrims. We're in a foreign land. We're ambassadors for Christ. Until then, always trust Him. Amen. Who knows what's going to happen economically, politically, politically, militarily and all the rest, who knows? But I know this, my God is in complete control. Amen. Just trust Him. Just trust Him. He, his word will come to pass. And we can trust that. John H. Stockton wrote in his hymn in 1873, Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. Amen. God knows what He's doing. Trust Him. Let's pray.